Uh, two months from this weekend, uh, Julie and I will travel to Oklahoma for my 35th college reunion, where I will be stunned at how poorly my friends have aged, given the fact that I have not aged at all. Uh, because that date is on the horizon, and because Julie and I got the chance to reconnect with a couple of my college friends multiple times this winter and spring when they were in Kansas City for uh, a time, I've found myself a lot kind of going back to my college days. Anything can send me back. And preparing for this message did, because it reminded me that when I was in college, there were two books that were kind of making the rounds on my campus. One was by a man named R.C. Sproul. Many of you have heard of him, and the book was called The Holiness of God. Uh, you need to add that, by the way, to your list if you're uh, a reader looking for something to read. Uh, without doing a book review, the book is essentially about being awed by the otherness of God in such a radical way that it fundamentally changes the course of your life. And in essence, that's what happened uh, to the people of Israel in the book of Exodus as God rescues them from slavery by His power and meets them in His majesty and then abides among them in His glory. That was the first book. The other book uh, was written by a man named Jerry Bridges, and its title is the title of our message today, The Pursuit of Holiness. And again, without doing a book review, it grounds itself in the holiness of God like Sproul's book does, and then it challenges the reader to pursue the manifestation of that holiness in their lives by leaning into the grace that God has shown in saving them. So, in essence, as I think about it, that's what the book of Leviticus is about, especially when you get to the last half of the book, which we'll cover today, saving the last two chapters for our conclusion next week. Now, it might not be apparent to us at first glance, but there's kind of a narrative arc to the book of Leviticus. It starts out essentially as an instructional manual on how to survive having God as your next-door neighbor, providing for us the regulations and the rituals of sacrifice. And this then is followed by the written record of the death of two priests, Aaron's sons, for cutting corners somehow on the regulations and the rituals uh, that God had, uh, had provided and has resulted in their death. And then that is followed by God outlining in detail the care which Aaron, the high priest, was to manifest when he entered into the Holy of Holies on the highest day on the Jewish calendar, the Day of Atonement. But once we get to Leviticus 17, the book becomes about the pursuit of holiness on the personal level by the people of Israel. In fact, the practical application of the Ten Commandments show up in one form or another from Leviticus 17 through the end of the book. But the command behind the commandments, that is the heartbeat of this section of the book, comes to us in Leviticus 19, 1 and 2, where it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, that logic is simple enough. We're being told that following a being whose very essence is one of holiness requires a commitment to holiness 
on the part of those who will claim to follow him. And again, the entire last half of the book unpacks that idea as God outlines for the people of Israel through Moses the means to holiness, the testimony to holiness, and the goal of holiness. And I want to spend our time together this morning looking at those three things. First, looking at what we'll call the means to holiness. If you would, please find Leviticus 17. Uh, we're going to bounce around a little bit this morning, but I would like us to start here together. Leviticus 17, um, and you can uh, follow along in your Bible or it'll be on the screens. Here's what verses 1 through 4 says. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. Now, let's make sure we know what the offense is and what the penalty is. We're told here that the person who would kill an ox or a lamb or a goat anywhere other than the front of the entrance of the tent of meeting or the tabernacle shall be considered to have committed blood guilt, which is the same language that the Old Testament uses to talk about the murder of another human being, and he shall be cut off from the people, which at least means, at least means he's kicked out of the nation and may mean that there is an expectation that God would execute divine justice on this person by a premature death. For what? For killing a goat in the wrong place. Seems a little extreme to me. But let's keep reading why all this drama. Look at verse 5. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So we get now, it's not just the slaughtering of livestock in the wrong place that God is referencing here. It's an attempt to offer an atoning sacrifice for sin apart from the rituals that God has prescribed earlier in Leviticus. And it's worded in such a way as to kind of cut off any attempt to lie by saying, what? That, that wasn't a sacrifice. I, that thing out in the field, I was having a barbecue. It's worded in such a way to cut off any opportunity to lie. So by saying that none of these animals should be slaughtered or offered anywhere but the door of the tabernacle is a way of God saying that any attempt to offer an atoning sacrifice for sin apart from the way that God has designated it to take place will be rejected and it will make that person guilty of a capital crime. So was this a problem? It seems so, or at least it could be. Look at verse 7. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. 
The indication here is that the temptation to do this, to kind of freewheel it in how you atoned for your sin was there, or at least it would be, though it probably hadn't been acted on in mass yet. Specifically, the temptation would be, once they got into the promised land, to kind of join uh, the service of God with what they saw going on in their culture, in service of their gods, to, to, to worship uh, in God, but, but also to worship and find spiritual fulfillment through the Canaanite fertility gods, here referred to as goat demons because of their idolic representation as goats. And it's also equated as having an adulterous relationship with these gods because it's an abandonment of faithfulness to God. And the rest of the chapter just kind of outlines the further encroachments of this kind of worship on full and complete obedience to God. So, by way of summary, Leviticus 17 reminds the Jewish people there's only one way to God. There's only one way to fulfillment in God. It is to avail themselves of the sacrifices that He Himself had prescribed for them. Thus, the means to holiness was sacrifice, more specifically, a substitutionary sacrifice, more specifically, a God-sanctioned substitutionary sacrifice. Unless Israel's hope, only hope, was in God's prescribed sacrifice, done God's prescribed way, there was no hope of a relationship with Him, and therefore there was no hope of achieving personal holiness. The means to holiness was sacrifice. Now, we've been coming to church for a long time, most of us in here, and we get conceptually we cannot be made holy in, without, without God's provision of a sacrifice through Christ to atone for our sin. And we get that the image of the sacrifice in the Old Testament ultimately culminates in Jesus Christ. So we know the right theological answers to this. We get that we can't be made holy, made right with God apart from His sacrifice. There's zero pushback. We know the answers to the theological test. But there might be more of a challenge to us as we are led by Leviticus 18 through 22 to consider the testimony of holiness, which is to do this. This is the testimony of holiness, to stand out singularly and distinctly from the world around us. Now, as we get going here, I think it's important for us to know that this passage that I'm about to summarize, one of the most hotly contested passages in the Bible during today's cultural moment because it contains some of the most explicit instruction condemning homosexuality and, and other non-normative sexual activities in the Bible, much less the Old Testament. In fact, it's so explicit, parents, that I will not be reading from it so as not to circumvent your plan as to when your child is old enough to encounter the information contained in here. But I do want to provide a bit of orientation to it all for just a moment as a rebuttal to those who would say that what we're about to summarize doesn't speak to us today. First, I would say this. It's important to know that the content of the sexual prohibitions that we see in this section are rooted 100% of the time by a very key phrase in the character of God Himself. You see over and over again the instruction given and then punctuated by the words, I am the Lord or I am the Lord your God. 
The ubiquitousness of that phrase is strong evidence that the instruction here isn't time-bound to the ancient Near East. These prohibitions are rooted in the unchanging character of God who still speaks this ethic to the world in which we live today. Second, it is important to know that God holds all mankind accountable to His sexual standards regardless of any perceived relationship to Him or not. Let me read to you three sections of this passage that are important not to overlook. First of all, look at Leviticus 18, 3 through 4. There it says, you shall, do as they do, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you live, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord. And then he begins to go in and talk about those statutes as it relates to sexual immorality. And look what he says beginning in verse 24. He says, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these nations I am driving out before you uh, by, for by all these, the nations I'm driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations, so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out, when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation before that was before you. And everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that are practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord. And then one last thing I want you to see. Look at Leviticus 20. Look at verses 22 and 23. There it says, You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. Here's what I want you to see. Every one of these passages tells us that the Egyptians and the Canaanites were under condemnation from God in spite of the fact that they did not have a perceived relationship with God or even seemed to be aware of His existence. Every one of them were under condemnation by God because of the sins of sexual immorality that are detailed here, letting us know that God calls all people of all times in all places accountable to His sexual standards and not just his followers. So the content of these prohibitions are rooted in God's character and are therefore standards for all people in all times and in all places. And then third and finally, the context of these prohibitions occur in the normal course of daily living. There will be critics who say that these passages are only a condemnation of non-consensual sexual relations, specifically in the context of the sexualized worship practices of the pagan religions, and therefore are not about the, uh, the consensual relations that we see in our world today. The problem with that is that some of these uh, prohibitions 
are considered to be consensual relationships. For instance, adultery is mentioned here. It's consensual, though sinful. So in my opinion, the critics of this passage are attempting to create a special class for, for uh, the, the sexual freedom that we have today that permits them to sidestep the clear teaching here that these prohibitions flow from the character of God. Thus, the people of Israel are being called to bear testimony of their commitment to God by their distinct understanding of and obedience to God's design for sexual expression. So we are most definitely not the first generation of God's people to give testimony of our allegiance to God by rejecting the sexual morals of the world around us, nor are we the first generation of God's people to compromise our testimony by succumbing to cultural sexual values. Let's not forget that the seeds of the current cultural moment were sown by baby boomers in the sexual revolution of the 60s. And the growing compromise in churches on matters of sexual faithfulness were sown when churches turned a blind eye to no-fault divorce in the 70s. Some of what we're calling persecution as Christians, is just our culture rightly calling us out for our hypocrisy, for us creating a special class for holiness. So let's stop the name-calling, let's stop the pearl-clutching, and let's just humbly live out and advocate for framing sexuality against the character of God and give a distinct testimony of God in our culture by doing so. And also by, plot twist, being a good neighbor. I want you to listen to what's nestled right in the middle of all of this sexual instruction, and I want you remembering how I said those things about sexual instruction were framed to how these things are framed. Look at Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. In other words, you shouldn't pick the field clean. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You should not strip the vineyard bare. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So what are we told here? We're told that caring for the poor and the immigrant are rooted in the character of God. I want you to look at Leviticus 19, 11 through 12. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Truth-telling, we're being told here, is rooted in the character of God, which we may want to think about before we post or forward or reply all. Now, I want you to look at Leviticus 19, 13 and 14. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. What are we being told? We're being told that caring for the voiceless is rooted in the character of God. Look at verses 15 and 16. You shall do no injustice in court. 
You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Championing justice is rooted in the character of God. Look at verses 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Treating people with dignity and respect and not as avatars, even when they're opposed to us, is rooted in the character of God. So why is it that our tribe of Christians is known for being vocal about sexual morality but being largely mute on the things that I have just outlined for us? Now, that's not entirely true. Jesus' followers of our stripe are deeply involved in everything I just read from Leviticus 19 and making a difference in our world. And there are many leaders in, in our tribe of Christians who are speaking boldly to sexual immorality and the other areas that I just read. So Christians are making a difference at the private level and also at the public level. It's just that they are frequently called woke or ostracized by a good many in our own tribe when they do that. Why is that? Listen to me. It's because we are not bearing a distinct testimony in our culture. The otherness of the character of God is being lost in Christian America because we fit so neatly into the ideological categories that currently divide our world. And like the Jewish people going into the land of Canaan 4,000 years ago, we are being called to stand out as belonging not to culture, but to God, the one true God. And lest I be misunderstood... I do not believe Leviticus is calling us, nor do I believe personally that we are to compromise one thing for the sake of the other. I don't think that we are being told here to weaken our commitment to biblical sexuality for the sake of loving our neighbor or to weaken our commitment to loving our neighbor for the sake of maintaining a commitment to biblical sexuality. I think it's just calling us to do all of it as a reflection of the character of God. I am the Lord, he says over and over again. Bear witness of that and not just the part of it you like. This section of Leviticus invites us to pursue holiness by remembering that the means to holiness is sacrifice. None of us can be right with God apart from His mercy and forgiveness given to us by, ultimately, the blood of Jesus. And it's also telling us that the testimony to holiness is to project the otherness of God in sexual standards and in loving our neighbor. But the last part of it tells us the purpose of it. And this is where I want us to land and shout. <laughs> It's all for the purpose 
of achieving the sweet fellowship and communion with God that we were meant to have. This is, this is the goal of holiness. It's not just to say, look at me. It's to, it's to be in fellowship and communion with God. If you read Leviticus 21 through 25 later today, and I know that everyone will do that this afternoon, you'll be forgiven if you scratch your head and ask yourself, well, haven't I read this before? Because a good chunk of it is a repackaging of information that we read about the Sabbath and the feast and the celebrations of those things in Exodus and in earlier portions of Leviticus. So why include it here? To remind us that the goal of holiness is fellowship and belonging. I want you to look at Leviticus 24.1. 24.1, here's what it says. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall also arrange it in evening, from evening to morning, before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that these things continue. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it, two-tenths of an ephah, uh, shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord, and you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is uh, for them a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. And you're going, what? What? But I want you to think about what it describes. Getting ready for company. Let's make sure that the house is arranged for people who might drop by. Let's make sure that we've got a meal prepared. What it's meant to communicate to the people of Israel is that God is eager and waiting to join in fellowship with His people. It's an image to communicate the character of God, that He is anxious to be with His people. And this is ultimately the ideal for which we are to strive. We are to be people who are consumed with the idea of being in communion and in fellowship with God forever. And the reason that Israel was to remember these things every week on Sabbath was a kind as a carrot on a stick for them to say, this is what you're shooting for. This is what God has in store for you. A provision of His presence through the holiness in your life that He has made possible. And God's purpose for his people is still to live a holy life so that they can experience the joy of his presence. I am living with these words that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. He says, And so, since the day we heard, we have not ceased praying for you, asking that you be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's the holiness. And then he says, being filled with all power according to His glorious might, 
so that you may be filled with endurance and all endurance and patience for joy. The end result of all of this is joy. This is what God wants from you. He's not wanting you to to check the box morally (laughs) so that he can say, well, I I I guess I don't have to keep them in line today. He's wanting us to so desire the fullness of his joy that we are disconnecting ourselves from anything in our lives, any attitude in our lives, any commitment in our lives that would keep us from it. And so his purpose then is to say, let's stop whoring after the false gods of sexual freedom and political power and social media influencer status and stop worrying about fitting in nicely in the categories that are around us and let's just rest in him showing the world what they need to see, which is Him through you. Join me in prayer, please.